So good morning. morning. Any of you joining us online, I'm Joel. Welcome to Heart City Church. It's a good day because we're in Esther chapter 7. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, on your devices. We also print it wonderfully in your bulletins right in the middle. And as we find our way there, I'm going to share an illustration that captures what's taking place in chapters 6 and 7. Does anyone know what Robert Watson Watt pioneered about 100 years ago? Robert Watson Watt, what did he pioneer about 100 years ago? Anybody? Watson Watt pioneered radar technology. This was a monumental discovery. Radar was actually a World War II game changer because the Allies could now locate the German U-boats. And the Americans furthered the technology after Pearl Harbor happened so they could then locate where the Japanese were. (coughs) Radar was a game changer. It was so important that they actually gave Watson Watt the Medal of Merit and they even knighted him. He was from Scotland. But in the 1950s, Watson Watt decided to move to Canada. Big country, long highways, and he soon got pulled over for speeding. The inventor of radar got caught in a radar trap (laughs) and forced to pay a hefty fine of $12.50. And a perplexed Watson Watt then wrote this poem, A Rough Justice. Listen to this poem. Pity Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of this radar plot. And thus, with others I can mention, the victim of his own invention. His magical all-seeing eye enabled cloud-bound planes to fly. But now, by some ironic twist, it spots the speeding motorist and bites, no doubt, with legal wit, the hand that once created it. That was rough justice indeed, but that is nothing in comparison to what is about to befall Haman the Horrible. Welcome to Esther chapter 7. I'm going to begin in verse 13 of chapter 6. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A fallen enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. 
And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared, has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged, hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we just sang that Jesus loves us. This we know, for the Bible tells us so. Oh, Father, send your spirit that we might take in your love and also how glad you are when we come to you for our salvation, which is only found in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So I see a few of us smiling. Seems like we're lacking in members of the Haman fan club here. We've been waiting for Haman to get his just desserts. His rough justice actually began in chapter 6 with him having to honor Mordecai. And now he's marched to his own backyard to face the death trap that he created for his enemy. Why? Karma? What goes around comes around? No. God's providence. God governs and is actively involved in all the world, all his creation. And everything he's doing is part of a plan to save his people and to destroy his and their enemies and all for his own glory. We've talked a lot about providence, but I want us to focus on something else as well today. Pride. Pride. Calvin writes, man falls according as God providence ordains, but he falls by his own fault. Haman providentially falls, but he also falls because of his pride. Notice three times you actually hear about Haman falling. Two times in verse 13, Zeresh tells Haman, you're falling and you will surely fall. And Haman literally falls in verse 8 before he's hoist upon his own petard. Do you see the danger of pride? Let's find out what the Bible teaches. This is very important. Our first heading will be Haughty Haman. Haughty Haman. And you'll notice that I included verse 13 from last week. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And I don't think this would have been a pleasant experience for Haman's wife or his friends. I say that because I think I had a similar experience last week. I just finished feeding five ounces of formula to a little one, and I set her down, and then she began to gag. So I picked her up immediately, began to pat her back, and you know what comes next, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm convinced it was more than five ounces of formula. <laughs> Thrown up all over my person. I suspect that's what Haman's crew felt here. 
as he came home and just spewed all over them. Haman had to swallow his pride that morning and honor the very guy he tried to destroy. He had plotted to destroy Mordecai. The king made him dress up Mordecai in royal robes with a crown, put him on a horse, and then parade him before the whole city, crying out, This is what is done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman heads home humiliated because he cannot stand giving Mordecai the approval that he desired. That is because Haman is full of pride. He really is a case study on pride and its character and its danger. The Bible wants us to understand pride and to kill it in our lives because it brings destruction. And here's the scary thing. Every person I'm looking at in here and every person in human history minus one since Genesis 3 is infected with pride. So what is pride? It is insatiable inward ego focus. It's me, myself, and I, the holy ungodly trinity, the unholy trinity. C.S. Lewis defines pride as ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. Ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. And I found myself wondering if Haman was actually the inspiration for C.S. Lewis' de definition. Let's consider Haughty Haman, who was made president, vice president, prime minister back in chapter 3, and he became enraged when one guy won't bow down to him. So much so, he was not content just to go after Mordecai. Haman's pride made him ruthless. And he convinced the king to approve a genocide of all of Mordecai's people, all the Jews. Do you see how ruthless that is? You see, pride is ever bent on bringing destruction, bringing others down. That's why it's unsmiling even at the good. In chapter 5, we have Haman bragging about all his blessings, his promotions, even his family. He says, I'm superior to everyone. Look at all I have. But he's not saying it with a grin on his face. He can't enjoy any of it. He said, but all this means nothing to me. He's saying this to his family. All of you mean nothing to me so long as Mordecai the Jew sits at the king's gate. Why is that? Haman has everything. That's what pride does. Because it's always evaluating self based on others around. Pride allows no lasting smiles from having something good. Because money, status, talent, none of these things matter ultimately because pride always gets pleasure on being able to compare with others and look down on them. And Mordecai won't bow. He can't look down on Mordecai. Of course, that leads him to the next step, a sleepless night, right? He's so resentful, so bitter, he's up all night building a 75-foot-tall gallows to execute Mordecai. Friends, pride won't let you sleep. How many of you struggle sometimes to sleep because of bitterness, resentment, over something someone's done. Haman went first thing in the morning to get permission to hang Mordecai. He can't sleep. He's up all night. Unbeknownst to him, though, <laughs> the king has plans for Mordecai today, too. After discovering on a sleepless night, the king had discovered that Mordecai had gone unrewarded for saving his life. Haman comes in. The king asks, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman was so vain that he thought this song was about him. <laughs> Pride immediately causes Haman to concentrate on self. 
Do you see how pride makes you needy, endlessly needy? Which is why he suggests a display to to demonstrate the king's approval of himself. Haman needs everyone to see in Persia just how important he is to the king. Have you ever met anybody who is just needy about their self-importance? Hey, did you hear what I did? Hey, do you know what I can do? Hear about this? Ever get frustrated with them? You ever dislike needy narcissists? I should have warned you not to nod or answer too fast. I saw a few kind of nods. Because here's the problem. The more you dislike pride in others, it actually shows the more pride you have in yourself. If you look down on a proud person, you have just evaluated yourself as better than them. Now, some of us are really glad that we didn't nod yes to looking down on the proud, which means now we're not looking down on you for looking down on them. Do you see how easy it is to exalt self by looking down on others? Pride is what Tim Keller calls endless ego calculation. Pride is all about self. It's always turned inward, never upward and outward, upward to God, outward to neighbors. I will only do something if I get something out of it. It's self-centered. Anything I do, anything I acquire is means to this end, my pleasure, my power, my praise, and end up hurrying here, hurrying there, hurrying everywhere, anything that promises self-satisfaction. By the way, does anybody notice just how big a hurry everyone is in our society today? Listen, pride is bad. It was pride that made the devil the devil. It was how the devil deceived Adam and Eve. Take this and you will be like God. That's why C.S. Lewis calls pride the complete anti-God state of mind. The complete anti-God state of mind. Friends, pride is bad, not just because it leads to destruction, because it is actually the root of all sin. It's the root of everything else you do. And pride actually hides itself. Every other sin you hide and you run to has pride behind it, but pride is always hiding, so you don't see it quite as easily. And the devil will do anything, anything to keep you proud. He doesn't want you to get rid of your pride. Even He'll help you even curb your sins, your other sins. Remember why Jesus condemned the religion of the Pharisees? They never sinned. They kept all the rules, and they added more rules on top of it. They loved to proudly look down on everyone else. They thought God would accept them because they did the, the ego evaluation, the comparison with everyone else. And they said, we got accepted by God. We get accepted because we're so much better. And guess what? Their pride actually kept them from knowing God who is standing in the flesh right in front of them. You see what pride does? And when you choose to be proud, it's only a matter of time before you surely fall. As Zeresh said in what amounts to her final words to her husband, what a sweet wife, <laughs> right? Haman is hurried out the door, and you can see he's no longer in control. I mean, pride hurries you along, but then you get hurried along by pride in the end. That's where chapter 7 begins. Haman has just had the worst day of his life. Now, it may be that after evaluating his situation at the feast, right, this wonderful feast, Haman starts to feel better. After all, No one else in Susa was invited. No public invitations were given to this feast. Only I get to sit with the royal couple. 
He polishes off some wine, and now he can relax, right? Because Mordecai's still a dead man. The edict still stands. All is good. I suspect that's what's on Haman's mind. Meanwhile, the king also has something on his mind. He swallowed several glasses of Susan Shiraz. And I think Clapton starts to play in his mind as he looks at this, this woman. <laughs> oh, my darling, you look wonderful tonight. He's looking fondly at this incredible woman that he married five years ago who recently became an even more attractive mystery to him. She risked her life just to see him. And after serving him two spectacular feasts, he knows she has a big ask. And she promised the big reveal would come this day. So he looks her in the eyes and he asks this stunning woman, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Our next heading is the selfless stunner. The selfless stunner. Now, I think it's worth noting the contrast between Haman and Esther. Esther is humble. Haman is haughty. The king asked each of them a question recently, right? And the responses are quite revealing. Haman's response when he went to see the king to execute Mordecai, his response was all about Haman. Esther's is selfless, as we see. Of course, Esther's response is the moment in this whole story we've been waiting for. Everything hinges on this moment in the book. Not only the fate of Esther's people, but Esther's and Haman's, right? This is tricky because when everything shakes out here, one of these two feast goers has to go. Either Esther, who's stunning to look at but replaceable, or Haman, the vice president who brings in considerable revenue. Everything hangs in the balance at this moment. But Esther has clearly allured the king. A change that happened, this selfless change that happened in chapter 4. Do you remember when Mordecai first begged Esther, to, told her to plead on behalf of their people? What did Esther say? No way. Not going to do it. I don't have that kind of pull with the king you think I have. He hasn't even asked to see me in a month. What you're asking is too risky. Do you see Esther has actually a low opinion of herself? Friends, that's a problem. Why was that her response? Because Esther, too, was full of pride. Now, we don't tend to think of her response as prideful, do we? Because Esther isn't acting superior to anyone here, is she? She's owning her inferiority. But the posture of inferiority is the flip side of the coin to superiority. The flip side of the pride coin. Why? Because inferiority turns inward. It's also an anti-God way of thinking. What's going on when you don't like yourself? When you beat up on yourself? When you look at all the things you're not and you feel sorry for yourself? It's not humility. Inferiority complex is another trick of Satan. Please listen. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. See the difference? Some of us struggle here to like ourselves. We beat ourselves up over what we can and cannot do. 
Stick us in a room full of a bunch of winners and we're just an emotional wreck, right? That's no different than Haman, who went from joyful to wrathful in a heartbeat after that first feast. Do you see that to be self-conscious is to be self-absorbed too? The king inquires of Haman. He self-promotes. Mordecai inquires of Esther. She self-preserves. It's no different. So let's look at our July verse of the month because here's where we find hope. It's at the bottom of our sermon page. Here is our hope right here. Here's the good news. Let us all say together, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We can kill pride and turn outward in love of God because of his providence. Because of his providence. God has promised you, my friend, that all things work together for good. Let me repeat that. All things work together for good. That's the math. That's the calculation that Christians use to evaluate whatever comes our way. This is for my good. And I know we don't have a problem believing that good things that come our way work out for good. But do we believe that bad things, tragedies, things we lack work out for our good? That's the rub there, right? Listen to John Newton, who once wrote, Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. All things for good. That's the only way we can rightly evaluate our lives and our situations that we're placed in. The calculation for us is that God has a purpose in these things. A purpose that will result in glory. In God's glory, our good, our glory. And Esther, Mordecai sends the second word to her. And she believes the word of God that he will save his people. That this will work out for good. And she's transformed at that moment. God's promise transforms Esther from self-preserving to self-forgetful. She says, if I perish, I perish. She's going to die, though, a humble person, if she does die. And humility has mastered her at this point when she now seeks to save her people. Let's, let's consider her words here. The king just popped the question, Esther, let me know. And the queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had merely been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Wow. Do you see her humility? Her language? If I have found favor in your sight. If it please the king. Compare Esther's speech for homework. Esther's speech here. To Haman's speech in the last chapter. Just compare the two. Haman's greedy. Esther's gracious. Do you see her selflessness here? The king promised to grant her her wish and her request, which to him are one and the same. And Esther uses this. My life is my wish and my people are my request. She's identifying herself and her people. Her destiny is now one and the same with them. 
You realize, in a denial of all self-interest, she just added her name to the list on death row. She just wrote her name in there. And now she gets tactical, saying that she and her people were sold. Notice the passive tense. She doesn't say you or anybody. She doesn't accuse. She says we were sold. She's actually implicating the person who patted the king's wallet. Tactical. And then she begins to quote the exact wording of Haman's edict. You see Haman right now, wine dribbling down his pale white face. (laughs) His worst day yet has not yet climaxed. And she's not done. She takes her humility to a whole nother level. She says, me and my people are willing to be your slaves. We, we are profitable. We're willing to be your slaves. And she'd have held her tongue if that was all it meant. Simple enslavement. And by the way, that's true. She's speaking from the experience of the Hebrew people who knew a lot about slavery and her own because she was abducted and made a plaything for the king. You see her humility? By the way, she's going this route because her husband has no moral compass. He was happy to permit genocide of an unnamed people group. She's wisely, though, appealing to his self-interest. Their destruction, king, it's not good for you. Do you see her deference? This edict is not in the king's interest more because she just wrote her name on there. He loses his queen, who he finds more stunning than ever. Friends, this is Esther's finest moment because we see here a dim picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, our sacrificial Savior. Jesus left his God status in heaven to take the form of a slave to go to the cross. And Jesus identified himself with all of you and you and I as rebels who rightly stand condemned under God's law. And in humility, Jesus counted our interest as greater than his own, our own, his own. And it's clear the king, he's just stunned by this selflessness that he's never seen before in the face of such injustice. And he barks out, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? Our final heading is Ahasuerus appeased. Ahasuerus appeased. I don't know whether we're more amazed at the king's cluelessness at this point or Esther's prudence. She actually circumvented his defense mechanism while arousing outrage over this injustice. She has delayed identifying the culprit while sparking the king's outrage. She's not just a pretty face, my friend. She's pretty wise. And we might expect her at this point to do like Nathan did to King David. Who did this? Hold up the mirror. <laughs> you the man. But she knows the better thing. She's actually trying to help her husband. And she points her finger at Haman and she cries out, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And the trap snaps shut on Haman. <laughs> and now everything's out in the open. Esther is a Jew. Haman is a con. And the king is a fool. Verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Seems like just on impulse, the king goes out to the garden. By the way, that's where our story began way back in chapter 1. 
where King Ahasuerus sought to create this grand empire all around his public image. He was prideful too. Then his pride got wounded and he made one of the worst decisions of his life. Remember, that was the end of his marriage to Vashti. A decision that he later regretted for years. And now he realizes that he too is in a trap. His life is stuck on repeat. He had hoped to honor his bride when he asked the question. He offered her half his kingdom, only to discover that he's wrecked her. I think he's singing Johnny Cash. I can't sing Johnny Cash, but I will say his lines. What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you could have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. He has hurt his beloved queen. And he's in a real quandary. Think about it. Can he punish Haman for something he agreed to? If he does, doesn't he indict himself and now ruin his public image? And more, he wants to save Esther. But how can he change a law that he can't revoke? And how about Hottie Haman? <laughs> Esther's played a royal flush. Game over. All that's left is the settling of the debt. And Esther has left him with nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. He can't follow the king, right? Because the king means to do him in. He can't leave the palace. Otherwise, he looks guilty. His only choice is to beg Esther in hopes that she might sway him like so many other people swayed the king to do something. And you really have to laugh at this scene as the king walks in to find Haman, whose pride led him to flip his lid over a Jew who wouldn't bow down to him, now bowing to a Jew and a woman at that in a kingdom that, by the way, decreed that men were the masters of their homes <laughs> over all their women. And this scene solves the king's conundrum. You see, he's searching for a solution to his Haman headache. And bah, here it is. You see, no man was allowed within seven feet of any member of the royal harem. And to fall on her couch is to break protocol. And this is just the excuse the king needed. So instead of trying to get Haman for the underhanded sale of the Jews, he gets Haman on a technicality, attempted rape, which he knows wasn't true. And at the king's word, you see the next scene, black bag over Haman's head, and then Harbona. He suggests a fitting way to dispose of Haman. The gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, oh, by the way, whose word saved the king, Jews are pretty important, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, and the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. This verse, then the wrath of the king abated. The next morning, the front page of every Persian paper read, the hanging of Haman the horrible, Ahasuerus appeased. And by the way, Persian gallows were actually wooden stakes upon which the victim was impaled and then raised up as a spectacle for all to see. So this is how horrible Haman is executed. He's hung upon a tree. Friends, we see a gospel foreshadow here. A death upon a tree satisfies the wrath of the judge. 
and also provides hope that the people of God might be saved from death. And I know some of us might get squeamish at me making Haman to be a Christ figure. Joel, what are you doing? (laughs) Well, I'll say there's irony at play. As Haman wanted to take the place of God, and God granted his request, rough justice indeed is what happens to the proud. Haman wanted respect, he wanted praise, he wanted acceptance, so he tried to exalt himself and he got humbled. Pride led to his fall because God hardwired the universe the exact opposite. It is the humble who are exalted, who get that praise we also crave. Which, by the way, and please listen, God wants you to have that. God wants you to have his praise. Haman's desire for praise, acceptance to be dressed up in royal robes and be honored by the king, that was actually a good desire. To desire to bring delight to one who is greater than you is a good thing. We are hardwired for this, and let me illustrate. Jamie and I have recently fostered a pair of little ones, and a few days ago I noticed something starting to happen. They wake up, you know, and they start crying, they're calling out, And Jamie will come up, and you know what she starts doing right away? She starts praising them. She says stuff like, oh, you're such a good boy. And the moment they see her and hear her affirmation, big smiles burst forth oftentimes, and they begin to coo. They think the world of Jamie, their caregiver. And it's wonderful. Friends, do you see? It fills their little hearts with joy, to know that someone they think the world of thinks the world of them. Do you see how God hardwired us? Haman's problem is not his desire for acceptance and affirmation. His problem is he's seeking it in all the wrong places. He's seeking it from the wrong king. Haman doesn't see that only God's acceptance of him will fill that hole in his soul. Maybe you're a not yet believer and you've never heard that. Or maybe you are a believer, but pride's still blinding you from knowing that about your God, your Heavenly Father. Lewis writes, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So step one, friends, is admitting we have a pride problem. Lewis adds, If you don't think you're conceited, you are very conceited. Because you can only make that conclusion in light of others and their mess. Picture in Esther, chapter 7, verse 10, helps us with our pride problem. Wrath abated with a death on a tree. We may not like juxtaposing Haman Haman on a tree with Christ on the cross. Why? Because evil, Haman is as evil as they come, right? But friends, if we think that, we're missing the glory of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Haman was not the most evil man ever hung on a tree. Jesus had more sin laid on himself, more evil than any of us could ever bear, any more sin than we could ever do. And he bore the full brunt of God's judgment that we might be saved. Christ mounted that cross and he took your shame, my sin, 
everyone's sin and shame who turns to him. He took it on himself. And this is called propitiation when God pours his wrath on him, the appeasing of God's wrath by a sacrifice. Friends, when we see what it took to save us, the one who is far above us, we actually have to see the Son of God stripped naked and cursed that you and I could be robed (laughs) and saved, there can be no pride. That's step number one, but friends, that's not enough. Remember, God wants to exalt the humble. The one worthy of all praise delights to praise you. The one worthy of all glory wants to glorify you. Read Jesus' prayer, John 17, for homework. Jesus prayed for that, and then he went to the cross to prove it. I want to conclude with Tim Keller, who says, To know Christ had to die for you humbles you. To know he was glad to die affirms you infinitely. One deals with our superiority problem, and one deals with our inferiority problem. The solution to pride is the gospel, what Jesus did for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we do confess, Lord, that every one of us here, in our hearing, in the hearing of my voice, we are full of pride. We uh, either despise ourselves or we despise others. And yet, you look down on us and you made enemies your friend. I ask and pray that you will help us to begin to look outward and upward. You'll give us your spirit that we might see Jesus more clearly. And I pray that we will uh, not try to be humble, but rather we will discover the glory of the gospel, of what Jesus did for us and his gladness and his joy to do it for us, that we may in fact go out and just show joy and happiness and interest in other people that they might wonder what in the world is going on with this person. Help us to be self-forgetful for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our neighbors whom you sent your son to die for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.